I really like the fact that the two of us are standing here because that says so much that's important about science. It says that a lot of great, fun science gets done because people work together, they bounce ideas off, the word partnership was used, and I think this is absolutely one of the, the great fun things about what uh, our experience was when we discovered telomerase. I'm actually going to give you a quote because uh, it reminds me a lot about science. I'm going to say this quote. There's always a dozen reasons for doing nothing. There's only one, one reason for doing something, and that's because you want to. And this was a quote from a character in a novel called Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, written decades ago by a British author. Nothing about science. But it's a lot about, about science. Because uh, we heard from our previous speaker how you could tote up reasons for not doing experiments. In fact, it's always true in my lab still. You can stand around and you can think of all the reasons why an experiment in biology won't work. And then in the end, you go ahead and you do the experiment. And the question is, well, why? Why do you do a new experiment that you know may very well not work? There is this list of reasons why it mightn't work. And part of the reason, I think, is because you develop an inner conviction that something is worth doing and something should be followed up. And where does this come from? Part of it comes from you've learned and understand the biology that, you, that you're working with, and uh, you know a lot about it, and you've kind of synthesized it together into a gut feeling that something is going to work. But this is not how we're trained in science. And I want to just tell you a little bit about how I got the confidence to go ahead and make the decision to hunt for telomerase. And it came from a wonderful scientist now deceased. Her name was Barbara McClintock. She was a corn geneticist, and she was a, a very venerable old age when I first met her at Cold Spring Harbor. But she used to say, come and talk. And she would talk, and it was just wonderful. I have to say, she would, I would go into her lab. It would be late afternoon. There'd be, you know, she'd share jelly beans, and, uh, and she would talk about science, and it would range from work she'd done in the 1930s to work she was thinking about yesterday synthesizing it together and it would get darker and darker and I wouldn't want to turn the light on because the spell would get broken. But she was a wonderful inspiration and very early one of her talks she said to me when I said to her I was getting some unusual results this was back in 1970s and she said trust your intuition in your science and I was actually very surprised because I had never thought that the word intuition got used with this very rational enterprise science. But I knew she was an extremely rigorous scientist herself, and she wouldn't say that unless there was a good reason. And that gave me this confidence to go ahead. And when I saw the way things were working out with telomeres, the experimental facts were starting to come in. And I thought, OK, we can go for it. And I had the enormous good fortune at that time that I'd done a few preliminary experiments, hour and other work, observing telomeres, had suggested, yes, there's something new here something interesting and novel, this enzyme might exist. We didn't have a name for it. And my great good fortune was that Carol joined the lab at that stage, and she wanted to do this hunt, this exciting adventure, and look for telomerase. I'm going to hand it over to her. <laughs> So um, as is typical of, um, of our interactions, um, we kind of talked about what we were going to say up here, and then uh, 
we both sort of changed our minds along the way. And so um, to show you the kinds of interactions that one can have in science, one of the points that I would like to make is one of the same points that, that Liz made. Um, and I just want to make um, two brief points. Um, and the first will be um, that what is really important to do is, although one has to have a lot of self-confidence, one also must at times be one's own worst enemy or best critic, um, is another way to put it. And the second point I'd like to make is that um, although science, as Liz said, is a very rational process, um, the interaction among people in doing science sometimes can lead to unusual results that would not be thought of rationally. Um, and so to make these points, I want to tell just one um, brief story, um, which uh, Liz has, has heard probably several times now. Um, and this was about an interaction that Liz and I had um, when we were working together in the lab. Um, typically, Liz and I would talk every couple of days as I was uh, doing experiments. And um, we would have very uh, definite ideas about what was going on in these experiments. And um, if you come up and talk to us, you'll know that neither Liz and I are, are shy about talking. Um, and so we would end up spending hours in the lab talking to each other about this experiment and, and what it might mean and how to set it up. And I recall one particular time when um, I had a very definite idea about what was going on um, in this particular experiment that I was about to do. And we talked about it for at least two hours because Liz had the opposite idea about what might be the outcome of this experiment. And so we went on and on and we talked to each other and we were very firm in our beliefs about what was going to go on. And the next day, I was going to go away and do the experiment, but I came in in the morning and Liz and I both said to each other that we thought that the other one's result was what was going to happen. <laughs> So my, <laughs> and then I did the experiment, and, and that wasn't, that's not the important point of, the, of, the, of the, the point I'd like to make, just that in talking, one can actually come to new ideas, and it's not just the rational basis of um, doing experiments day to day in the lab, but rather the interactions um, among people. And the point about being uh, one's own best critic is that um, although you have to have the confidence to go ahead, you also want to be out there and thinking of all of the things that you could be doing to fool yourself in an experiment. And that's how talking to somebody else about th those sorts of things um, can help you realize that. We, we so I guess we can take questions. Yes, Hi, my name is Melinda Baldwin. I'm from Golden, Colorado. And I was just wondering, with so many fascinating fields, especially in molecular biology, what was it about telomerase that really captured your imagination and made you want to do this experiment? I guess I love it when things don't obey the rules. And the telomeres, that's, that's the DNA at the ends of the long thread-like things, the, the chromosomes that carry out all our genetic material. And the DNA at the very ends of chromosomes wasn't obeying the textbook rules. It was growing and shrinking and things were getting added on inside cells. And you can sit and argue forever about what might be going on, but one way to find out is to just dive in and roll up your sleeves and do what Carol did and just look and find out. And so um, I, I think it was sort of a fascination of something that was behaving differently. It was a new frontier. It was in the unimaginable days when actually sequencing DNA was a novel thing. I can't believe I'm saying that, but, but it was actually exciting to see. Uh, I, I, a few years ago, got the sequence of the DNA at the ends of chromosomes, and it was different, and it was behaving differently from what um, the rest of the DNA 
does. So I think he was rebellious DNA and uh, I have his rebellious soul and <laughs> they two just <laughs> met together. Uh, so yeah, so it's a, a curiosity. I think we all want to know deep down what goes on inside cells. You know, we're, cells are made, you know, we're made of cells. It's us at our most core. You know, we're all the same in the fundamental biology way and yet we, we don't understand an awful lot of what goes on. Still, despite our marvelous advances, there's still you know tremendous amount that we don't understand. So this curiosity. Carol should, Carol should address it. Okay. My name's Lindsay Horvath. I'm from Las Vegas. I'm going to ask kind of an atypical question, I guess. Um, do you have families of your own, and how has your intense research and possible different uh, results from the experiments you found and having to divulge into um, further experimentation, how has that affected your family lives? Well, I'll, I'll start with that. And I mean, we both do have families, and both our families are actually around here. And um, I will point out that, that Liz is uh, somewhat, I mean, she's my mentor in many ways, but uh, she, she did have uh, her son, uh, Benjamin, when I was working in her lab, which gave me uh, the confidence to go on when I wanted to set up my own lab that I could have a family. And you might have heard some noises in the back a minute ago, because my daughter was over there. She wanted to watch me. She's six months old. Uh, so, <laughs> um, and my son was there as well. So yes. Um, we both do have families, and um, from my um, point of view, um, I really want to have the best of both worlds. And when I think that I'm doing a successful job is when um, I don't have enough time in the lab, and when I'm in the lab, I really want to be there, and I'm upset that there's not enough time. And then I go home, and I only want to really be at home, and I want to be with my kids, and there's not enough time. And so if I'm splitting that correctly, um, then, then I think that I'm, I'm doing what I love both in two different realms. Um, and it's difficult, but everything that you're going to hear from anyone <laughs> that's here um, is difficult. Um, but it certainly can be done. Do you want to add something? I totally agree, and I, I think there's something else to add too. That that you know your life is going to span many, many, many decades of adulthood, and um, and families are something. It, it, it's a you know it's a stage. Families have developments. They come you know there's a stage where people will like you. They'll go to college, and so I think that. One doesn't want to feel that you're going to get stuck in the path that you're going to be in forever, for five decades more, or however more you know decades you know you'll keep on being a productive um, person. Uh, you know your your family life will go in um, sort of ebbs and flows. And I think Meryl Streep once said, "Every professional, successful woman, her life may have ebbs and flows." She was talking about the life of an actress, and she has um, you know family. And so I think there were times when she would take off you know more or less time depending on where she was in her family. So I think that you should think of it as, um, you know, there is time for, for so many things in, in life and to preclude one or the other. Now, while they're both going on at the same time, yes, it's tough, but so rewarding on both sides, so rewarding to have a family, so rewarding to be doing work that, that you love. And it, it really can be done. It's amazing that it can be done. <laughs> Hi, um, I'm Kirsten Smith from San Jose. And uh, you know the telomeres have um, an impact on how many times the cell divides and how long it can live. And I was wondering what sort of an impact uh, your research would would have on the general public uh, in terms of like delay in aging or cancer research or things like that. Um, there's uh, a lot of information about about both aging and cancer research, um, and I think that. Um, while there is uh, probably information in both of those areas that will affect us um, uh, in terms of uh, in biology for a number of years, um, uh, at least my uh, 
research that we're doing in our lab focuses a little bit more on the cancer research side. Um, the, the cellular, uh, the ability of cells to divide in terms of how many times they can divide in culture, um, that is a property of cells um, which are cancerous. They divide more times than they normally should. Um, there has been a lot of um, uh, talk about the ability of cells to divide actually having to do something with aging in terms of lifespan of the organism. Um, and the, the data, as best that I see it right now, is that the, the component of lifespan of an individual cells into lifespan of the organism is only a very small component. There are a number of different factors that go into organismal lifespan. So for instance, there is no correlation between telomere length and organismal lifespan in really any species, um, despite what you might have read in the popular media. Um, there's a, a correlation between telomere length and um, ability of cells to divide in culture, which gets back to the cancer question. Um, and so I think that the major impact, at least right away, would come in that area. Just, just to expand very slightly on that, um, perhaps in terms of aging, while it may not determine lifespan, there may be aspects of wear and tear in our bodies that could be um, impacted on by, um, you know, telomeres failing to replenish themselves. But that's not actually proven that that really is the limiting component yet. But these are things that we have to all look at. And, and if it turns out some of these things do impact on disease or even you know, the quality of later life, these are actually very important issues for us as society and globally to think about very, very hard. So uh, you know, there's unexpected directions. So telomerase is a sort of, it's sort of got a yin and a yang. It's a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You know, it depends on the context. And right now, we're in the stage where we don't know which way it'll really turn out. It'll probably turn out interesting. But I don't know where the medical applications will, will work. But nothing is absolute in biology. You know, everything is always uh, complicated <laughs> and much more complicated than, say, physicists would like. You know? <laughs> Oh, right. <laughs>